Hey friends, I'm Bryant Russ, and in partnership with Christian Schools International, you're listening to Lighting a Fire. When the motifs of the Bible fill your imagination and that fills your view of the world, you realize that J.K. Rowling didn't use the image of a snake to represent evil Slytherin just out of nowhere. She did that because of scripture. And it kind of connects the world of the student with the world of the Bible in this really powerful way. Welcome back to the show. Today we're joined by two Bible teachers from Veritas Christian Academy in North Carolina, Heidi Dean and Zach Pritz. Heidi and Zach are passionate about helping students develop a literary lens to engage the Bible's many themes, motifs, and symbols through the practice of biblical theology. Also, stay tuned to the end of the conversation to learn about the upcoming CSI Bible Instruction Symposium, featuring incredible speakers like Sally Lloyd-Jones, author of the Jesus Storybook Bible, and The Bible Project. You're not going to want to miss it. So, Zach and Heidi, thanks so much for joining me this morning. When I was studying to teach, I got a degree in religion education. And a lot of the, the conversation was like, okay, likely be in a, in a Christian school, but there was potential, my advisor said, to teach. Uh, some public schools had a Bible as literature program. I was always fascinated that whenever it was talked about in a non-religious setting, it was always referred to as the Bible as literature. Um and yet you guys, if I understand correctly, you guys are convinced that understanding the Bible as literature is actually an important part of reading the Bible as our holy scriptures, as followers of Jesus. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to that conviction? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we, here at Veritas, when we teach Bible, we're never thinking of the Bible as mere literature or human literature only. But there certainly is a literary component in these stories and poems and letters that God has given us. And I'm really grateful to Zach and to our headmaster for helping pioneer that here at Veritas. So he may want to fill you in a bit. You know, the way I kind of think about it is the Bible isn't merely literature, like Heidi said, but it certainly is literature. And in order to appropriately read it, appropriately acquaint yourself with it, especially our students, um, sixth through through twelfth grade is where we really emphasize this is to begin by treating it as a book, as a story. A lot of times we simply want to come to it from a theological, philosophical, or even applying it to our lives right away prior to treating it first and foremost as a story with you know beginning, a middle, and an end and reoccurring themes and patterns and characters and settings and um, all the elements of, of any book. What do you think is added to our experience of the biblical text when we appreciate its literary elements? Uh, and maybe even start by defining what we mean when we say literature or, or when we engage the Bible literarily. What exactly do we mean? What are we paying attention to specifically when we read from that perspective, and what's gained when we do that? Well, Brian, I think at first you want to discuss reading a whole book. And sometimes as we study the Bible and as we memorize scripture as children, 
we're thinking of scripture verses just kind of pulled out of context the way we might have memorized them. I know I did a great little Bible memory program, but it was alphabetical. It was just verses pulled about anger and, you know, each letter of the alphabet. And I think over time, I kind of got the sense that the Bible was one book written by God. But I thought that the only purpose of the divisions was you had a number to kind of flip and find that page. And so you memorized like some label that went with it. I had almost no sense that these authors, you know, wrote a text at different times, different places. They came from different languages. And it was a really new experience when I met someone who had a more literary understanding where they they might not even know a specific verse. They hadn't just memorized verses out of context, but they kind of knew a whole author and his major themes. And so they said, oh, you know, that theme of temple is so powerful. And it's like, oh, you know, in Ezekiel, I don't remember where, but he's talking about the temple by a river. And he was connecting themes that first of all, were books that were very obscure to me. I had never even thought about the book of Ezekiel. Um, the prophets were books that I just tend to you know, gloss over. I think I read through the canon just to feel like I had done it. But after that, I think mostly my idea of God was just informed by these scattered verses and generally having some conceptions of God, some conceptions of sin, and some conceptions of grace. But beyond that, I don't know that I was in touch with other themes in the Bible, such as concrete images. And I would also add the the other idea that the biblical authors they were style they were they were stylists and they were composers so they were bringing together these these fragments even these these stories of history that are true but they were bringing them together weaving them together into you know sort of a, a tapestry of story so and i think the misconception is that if you read it as literature as we hear you know, in, in the public school course that you said, well, then you're devaluing it. But I actually believe it's the opposite of that, where uh, the certain parts of scripture must be read with uh, an eye for the imaginative, the imaginative aspect of it, the concrete images, um, you know, the reoccurring themes and patterns like temple, like kingdom, you know, like priest. And, and so that's sort of what, what, when I say the literary aspect or the Bible as literature, that's what I mean. Sounds like a lot more imaginative or artistic, stylistic, you use that word, than I sometimes think of the Bible. Can you give us some examples? I don't know, Heidi, you mentioned the prophets in particular. Can you give us some examples of how the Bible operates using, say, images, for example, to develop themes? Sure. I think that concrete imagery is something that you see a lot in scripture and you see in other literature too, that a concrete image can become a symbol and a motif, particularly by being repeated at key moments throughout the story. Um, if you just think of J.K. Rowling and some of the books of Harry Potter, there might be an image of a dog coming back again and again, but it might be referenced differently, perhaps howling or canine or you know just the image of the dog. So a motif isn't so easy to pick up because the author is interweaving it in different ways. But my students love when we read across the canon, noticing that there has been a motif. In the mm. book of Joshua, they noticed that stones are used frequently and it becomes this repeated word. Um, there's stones at all these key moments. And so there's something about creating these stone memorials for the people to always remember what God had done in that location, whether it was an act of salvation or an act of judgment. And that's something very concrete that we, we have a little motif notebook. We keep track of these themes, whether it's fire or the color scarlet 
or um, some other concrete image, we love to kind of draw it and think about the meaning of why does God represent himself through that image? Why would he choose fire? What is it about fire in the burning bush or when he shows himself as a torch or a, a you know, an object of fire. What What is it about fire that conveys something of God? And it really pulls the kid's imagination in, but it's completely from the text. It is there. It's just that sometimes we miss it. Hmm. Yeah, I would agree that the literary elements of the, of the Bible are what draw the reader in. And I think a perfect example is Christ himself and, and the methods that he used to teach. His parables weren't meant to be factual historical accounts, right? They were intended to be crafted fables and stories that drew the listeners into a deeper pattern of reality. And I think that that is exactly what the the use of these concrete images in scripture are for. They didn't have to use those. You know, there was no there was no mandate to to speak imaginatively, but still in Psalm 1, you're going to have the the righteous man compared to a tree. And so because of the strong connection there between the underlying reality of a healthy tree and the reality of a healthy and righteous individual. And so I think it's that connection, that discovery that is so appealing to students when they're able to draw those connections like Heidi is discussing. Just yesterday in my 10th grade class, they we were reading Acts when at Pentecost when the, the Holy Spirit falls and, and many of the students immediately picked up on the use of the word fire and the uses of the images of, of a rushing wind. You know, so in one sense, you, the students could just pick up on it and say, the Holy Spirit fell, that's important, that's significant. But then when you draw in the the qualities of these images, they enhance that understanding because then they're able to draw it to fire and wind in in other parts of scripture and see that the writers are making those connections and we're meant to discover those. Hmm. I love that. You're talking about literature as a vehicle for communicating really important things. I mean, like things like the, the truth, things like beauty um, how does literature or even poetry communicate those things in a way that maybe facts don't always get to the heart? <laughs> That's a great question in the sense that I've thought a lot about how we need poetry to access some of the deeper and harder areas of life. Hmm. If you think of Job and how he was struggling with really big questions about human pain and suffering and the evil in the world, there's just not really a systematic answer that God can very easily, you know, explain one plus one equals two, and that's why it all makes sense. Um, and so instead of trying to give a very systematic answer, God actually revealed himself through images. He He eventually showed him all these um, animals in the natural world and the Leviathan, these creatures that are so powerful, and kind of drew an analogy, I guess, about himself from these animals. And he never gave him a very straightforward an- answer he gave him a very poetic answer and sort of left it at that. And I think that's true of some of the the hardest questions and answers in life. There's just not a very simple systematic doctrine that we can state. Yeah, I think of poetry. I think of some of my favorite poems. I, you, you can't just, you know, um, 
you can't just spark note a poem, right? Because it's not just the bullet points, but it's the it's the way things are being portrayed or communicated mm -hmm. that impact the reader, not just the bullet points. Mm -hmm. Can I ask how how might appreciating the Bible and what you guys are discussing in terms of its literary value, how might that shape Christian community? It, it is a great question because it, it draws on an element of literature that is so important, which is, as Heidi was saying, the way in which literature draws a listener in to a first person experience and a discovery. And we, again, if you return to the way that Christ used parables almost as a riddle, which on the surface may seem like a roundabout way of talking about the truth. I think I even remember my students asking, why, well, why doesn't Christ just tell them? Why doesn't Christ just tell them <laughs> yeah, exactly totally, who totally. he is? Tell them the truth and then they'll understand. Well, we know that we have ears that don't hear. <laughs> and so um, I think there's an element of, of personal responsibility and personal discovery and willingness. And, but I, I also think it does generate a, an imaginative consciousness, even among a community. So you guys are both Bible teachers. What skills are students going to have to develop to really engage the Bible in this way? And do you, do you, in your experiences, do you have a sense that students sometimes, even when they have the skills to engage literature, say from an English course, do they sometimes set those aside when they read the Bible? And how do you encourage them to, to pick up those same skills and to utilize them in the biblical text? That's a great question. I think that many times students of the Bible might ignore some of their English language skills when it comes to the Bible, but we're trying to revive that. For instance, when you think of character, we need to really look at the details of how a character is described hmm. and unpack those details. So we're looking at King Saul and sometimes students want to rush to the ending of the story and just say, well, we know that he was um, put down from the throne for certain actions he did. So he's just, you know, not a great character. Well, that's not really true across his whole life. There were moments where he, he showed quite a lot of potential and he's an ambiguous character. He's a complex character and I want hmm. them to enter into that. So I love applying these literary skills where we will focus on details and it, through seminar discussion, have students emotionally engage. I'll say, do you, do you feel bad for this character or do you feel that he's getting what he deserves? And they'll have a really good discussion and, and debate by unpacking certain details of what, what were virtuous aspects of his life and what were vices and could he have controlled those vices? And, you know, how did his character unfold? And, you know, by thinking more deeply about the story instead of rushing to the ending, um, I think that they come across much stronger applications when it does come to applying it to your life. We don't hmm. start with trying to apply every single chapter, stopping at every moment, what we do is try to allow a full episode or the full story to kind of marinate and resonate. And then at the end, what could we draw from the whole life of Saul that we could take hmm. away? Um, but it's really encouraging to see them actually debating both sides of an issue rather than um, rushing to one conclusion, because I think it's actually in that Socratic seminar and in the debate and in discussing both sides that they come to a deeper and fuller understanding. 
Heidi, you mentioned engaging emotionally with the biblical text. Obviously, you know, we could maybe idolize emotions and make it all about emotion, but I think there's another way in which we often neglect an emotional experience of the text. I'm thinking of we're reading Lamentations right now in one of my Bible courses. And if you don't, if you don't like feel it, if you, if you don't like see the, the, the desperation and the despair and like hear these voices coming out of the page and crying out to God, like, I think you're missing it. How, how do you encourage students or maybe even model that like experience, even at an emotional level with the biblical text. Well, Brian, it's so funny you mentioned Lamentations because I have gone to that exact same book to say some of the darker parts of scripture, rather than discouraging you, might actually be the thing that rescues your faith. I think it did for me. I needed to know that the Bible doesn't speak with only one voice because there are so many different authors who lived at different moments in God's story. Some of those moments were dark and discouraging and hard, and they couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And there's times in our own lives when we're going to feel like that. If we only live out of the book of Proverbs, for instance, which is about wisdom for wise living, we might tend to think of everything through the law of sowing and reaping and that everything that happens is sort of our fault for choices we made. But then if you think of the book of Ecclesiastes, it says many times, regardless of what actions you've been performing, the outcome isn't fitting. It, there's, there's a weird incongruity with what happens in the world. And we might need both messages, the message of Proverbs and that message of Ecclesiastes that sometimes life can seem quite meaningless. Hmm. And it's actually those darker parts of scripture that can really engage students because they are rather complex and ambiguous. And actually, St. Augustine said that those complex parts of scripture were given so that we wouldn't just be guilty of lethargy. Sometimes we get almost bored of the Bible or we think we understand it. We think we know God's point. And to actually have to engage each individual portion and see what the key themes are can really be startling. Hmm. Oh, amen. Heidi, I love what you said about it, it might be uh, might save your faith, realizing that the Bible goes there. That's so true. <laughs> and I've seen that in students as well, where there's almost a surprise, like, wait, did the psalmist just say what I think they just said? And, and realizing, uh, I think sometimes... I'd have the questions anyway when I experience suffering about how can God be good and in control, for example. I'm going to have that question, but the difference is that the Bible models these people come to God and, and bring these grievances and confusions before the living God. That's an act of trust, perhaps, rather than an act of defiance. And the Bible, you're so right, it does that very thing. <laughs> Brian, I loved this conversation my sixth graders had about the book of Genesis when we were finished. And I think that, first of all, they felt that we had entrusted them um, to read through the full story, that they could handle it. But I asked them, do you think this is appropriate for children younger than yourself to like hmm. the different dark parts of <laughs> Genesis? And so they're having this like lively debate thinking about the parts that were uh, PG-13 rated. And um, But a student said, you know, but this is true to life. It can't all be rainbows and unicorns. And they just, <laughs> they had the best debate. And I think it really gathered um, and encouraged their respect for scripture. I knew they knew that it was a holy book, but also to see that it is so true to human life and human experience. And that means it's going to have to include darkness and these R-rated moments when people are so evil. And yet that is the human race that God is dealing with. Sometimes I wonder about the Bible's ancientness being written in a world very different from my own. I, I sometimes have this sense that characters can feel one-dimensional, likely because of just the style in which it's written. 
uh, is that, do you see that as kind of an obstacle or an opportunity perhaps to asking questions about what's going on, say in Judas's mind right now, like what's the internal conflict? Cause we're, we're not, I mean, in the modern novel, you might have pages devoted to a scene like Judas deciding to sell out his Lord or, and yet here we're just given almost like these robotic, here's what he did without giving a glimpse into his heart and mind. Uh, how do you deal with that with students? How do you make it come to life? Brian, I think you're absolutely right that the conciseness of ancient narrative is one of the things that can lead a person to believe that it doesn't have the literary qualities that a modern novel has. And many times we've missed some of the ways that it's weaving together something beautiful and literary. Um, And yet at the same time, it gives a student or any reader the chance to think deeply about it because the, the author often doesn't insert his own authorial perspective. He rarely kind of comes out and tells you how to interpret a character. Hmm. There are times that he does it. When we were doing Jacob and Esau, he said, thus Esau despised his birthright. And he sort of told us how to interpret that. That was a really key moment. We honed in on that, but it's also rare. Um, The author does not normally tell us how to interpret in such straightforward language. And so it's actually been great for my students to get to debate the outcome of a person's actions and how should we interpret it? Um, Because we're often meant to figure it out based on what happens. The author seems to show us more than tell us um, what the moral of the story is. And so I think it's actually great for discussion and garnering really good conversation. It adds an element of, of a meditative, contemplative aspect of scripture. That again, I think you can lose in in a a merely theological reading or a, sort of a critical reading of scripture. I think you can lose the meditative aspect of what is there is so concise if you just think about the time span of some of these stories and really how they fit, you know, a very large portion of time into a such a short couple pages. Well, why is that? Why did the writer choose to keep this? Why, why is that here? And then that, that's cause for deep consideration. And, and I think it requires you to slow down. It requires you to read very carefully. And it requires you to hang on to every single word. And I find myself reminding my students of that all the time. Uh, every single word matters. And so why is it there? And what is it drawing us to? I'm curious, do you guys ever experience pushback or even just a fear that uh, sounds like, and I I wholeheartedly agree with you that like it requires the reader to show up like students, you've got to show up. You've got to analyze, you've got to ask the questions. We've got to discuss what is this character thinking? Because it's not often told to us is there a danger or do you ever experience a fear from people saying, well, well, then it, does that put it too much in our lap to figure out? And is there a danger with that? And if so, how do you how do you kind of quell those fears? Brian, I have heard parents be concerned that if we are doing the work of interpreting ourselves and we're asking students to put forward their best guess about the interpretation, we might just be pooling ignorance or pooling our own opinions and not really getting into you know, the meat of the issue. Hmm. But Zach and I have done a lot of training. Um, There's an organization, the National Paideia Seminar, that trains how to lead excellent seminars. And we make it really text-based and text-focused. So you frequently have to 
provide the actual quote, the detail, what page was it on. And by gathering the specific details from the text, you have to build a case based on the data. Is that truly a repeated word? Well, how many repetitions did you see? Things like that are a way that the Hmm. author actually signals that he cares about this issue. If he speaks about it over and over, we know that the author cares about it. And um, so it's great to see students realizing that that's actually how biblical scholars do their work. They're doing the work of a biblical theologian by quantifying the data on a given point. Um, So I don't think it actually descends into subjectivity. I think there's so much just objective data in the text to mine and to interpret. Hmm. Love that. Guys, what you're describing sounds awesome to me, but it also sounds like a lot of work. Like it sounds like there are skills and and habits that need to be acquired. What might you say to a student who's just not interested in, you know, I'm not any good at English literature to begin with. I'm not good at engaging literary texts, themes, motifs, and symbols. That's not really my thing. How would you make the case that the Bible is worth that kind of engagement? Brian, it's it's funny. I think that students actually really enjoy Bible class because to some extent we're trying to set up the whole ethos and the aura and the assessment to reflect that we really just want you to engage with the text and that's a joy and we're going to assess it appropriately. So we have so much laughter in class because we're not tiptoeing around this the scripture as, as though they don't also contain sarcasm and humor and these funny things. Um, we have a lot of laughter and you can just see that students are enjoying Bible class when they are mm. Uh, enjoying the story of Ehud and um, Eglon, like the fat king who got this knife stabbed into him. And I mean, they were definitely laughing their way through that story. So the Bibles are, the Bible is enjoyable. Um, It was meant to be enjoyed. And I think if we are treating it in such uh, a fashion that we think that we can't laugh at the funny portions, we haven't engaged with it emotionally enough. Hmm. What do you hope your students walk away with after a semester in your Bible class How do you hope they see the Bible differently and maybe even the God of the Bible differently because of the time they spent in your course? There's a few things that come to mind when I think about, you know, what's our aim? What's our aim with these students? And really, I think it boils down to interpreting the world through the lens of the Bible. And I don't even mean that in in, in merely a theological manner, although that's certainly true. And I think that is a byproduct of a close reading and spending a lot of time with the text. I think you, a byproduct of that is going to be a, a, a theological um, framework being built in your, in kind of in your soul and in your mind. But I think even, you know, apart from that, I think they receive a storehouse of these images and these themes and these patterns that are set forth again and again in the Bible. And, and then it's really cultivating a poetic imagination. And I think that begins with the biblical text. You know, why shouldn't it? Why would we turn anywhere else to cultivate the imagination of our students when we, when we have inherited such a rich text? And, and so for them to be able to go away from our courses, seeing the beauty, the wonder of trees and how they're connected to so many different elements of the human experience or being here in Western North Carolina and seeing the mountains. You know, I've had a student say when when I when we pulled down that road and I saw the mountain up there, it really reminded me of that, you know, that ascension motif that's in the Bible over and over and over again of, of, 
these people ascending to a mountaintop to meet with God and the mountain filling with fire and smoke. And so, you know, to me, that's that's the imagination that I believe we're attempting to cultivate in uh, in our students. And, and that's kind of our that's at least partly our prayer for them. And Bryant, when you think of combating secularism with Gen Z, our youngest generation yet, um, we have um, such a road ahead of us because as a culture, many people don't find belief in God as compelling now as perhaps in the past. So there's less cultural support for it. But the thing that is a real ballast for faith is when you have seen a concrete way that God has worked in your life or worked in someone else's life. Hmm. And when Zach says that this is all about concrete imagery, it's tying the God of the Bible to everyday human activities like feasting. And he mentioned mountain, fire, tree, river, these things that you actually encounter the world of the Bible in this really powerful way, I think it stays on their mind and on their imagination hmm. and it engages their heart as well as constantly connecting them, um, the world back to God, back to the world. And I love that our students pull in science and history and all these you know, other areas of mythology and literature when we're talking in Bible class, because they see connections all the time between the image God might use and what that means in the world, what it means to us as humans, what it has meant throughout history. And so it's just such a great way to interweave um, all of life with scripture. Heidi, I love this and I want to learn more. Would you tell us a little bit about another hat that you wear and an opportunity coming up for CSI school teachers? Tell us a little bit about the, the Bible Symposium in February, would you? Yes, absolutely. Christian Schools International is hosting a symposium on this topic of using biblical theology in the K-12 classroom. And Biblical theology does revolve around literary skills and reading through the canon with your students. We'll be hosting that over at Tyndale House Publishers because they publish one of the reader Bibles that our schools have been using, the New Living Translation. And we have a number of sponsors joining us. We have a number of leading teachers from model schools who have been implementing this approach who will be leading breakout sessions where they show how to do a classroom technique, how to annotate your way through the Bible, how to lead a great Socratic seminar, and all the skills that are required to implement this approach. We have a great lineup of speakers, including Sally Lloyd-Jones of the Jesus Storybook Bible, The Bible Project with their animated videos, Nancy Guthrie, who's been popularizing biblical theology, Rebecca McLaughlin, a number of authors from The Good Book Company. So we have just a tremendous lineup of speakers that we hope you'll come here. So we're very excited to invite people to come on February 11th and 12th, and it's virtual, so you get to log onto your computer. We would love you to take that SM professional development for Bible specifically, because we do feel this has been a gap. Um, they're actually, it's been hard for us sometimes to come together on the same page, but this is an area where so many different denominations are coming together. We are actually bringing um, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Reformed, Anglican, all manner of theologians agreeing that this is a wonderful approach for K-12 to just dig into the text in this way. And so we hope that you'll come here, Sally Lloyd-Jones and Nancy Guthrie, and the amazing lineup of speakers that we have. Um, we would love every Bible teacher to be encouraged in that way. Heidi, that sounds awesome. Where could I go to find out more about that? Absolutely. You can Google CSI Bible Instruction Symposium, or you can click on the link that we provide. And we'll make sure we provide that in the notes below. Thank you so much, Bryant. It was great talking with you today. If you enjoyed today's conversation, make sure you subscribe to the Lighting a Fire podcast so you don't miss an episode. As always, feel free to email me with questions or ideas at bruss, B-R-U-S-S, at hollandchristian.org. In partnership with Christian Schools International, this is Lighting a Fire.